off topic before going to the next question. Uh, your chair kind of sounds <laughs> like you're farting. <laughs> Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve in the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Joining us on the program tonight, Damien, a grinder and partner with DangerousThings.com, Cooper, a sysadmin who lives open source solutions, and Cursor, a software dev with a master's in specializing in RF technology. Up first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com if you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of the Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at DangerousMinds.io and or email us at info at DangerousMinds.io and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. As normal, we've got our special bulletin for a previous guest on Dangerous Minds, uh, Rich Lee. He's currently going for a rough patch and is fighting for his kids. So as a community, we're going to stand up and help him. So Rich has done a lot for advancing the scene in grinding and biohacking. So we as a group need to do a lot to give him a hand as well. So let's go to his GoFundMe page, give him some money towards those, uh, those legal battles that he's going through. The address is www.gofundme.com forward slash cyborgdad. Once again, www.gofundme.com forward slash cyborgdad. This week on Dangerous Minds Podcast, we have Sydney Swain Simon, co-founder of Neurotech X. Thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us what biohacking, grinding and transhuman means to you and your own grind, as it were? Sure. Uh, so as you already mentioned, I'm a co-founder of uh, NeurotechX. Uh, for those who don't know who we are, we're a non-author organization, which is putting together the largest network of uh, neurotechnology enthusiasts. So I'll explain a little bit about what I mean by neurotechnology afterwards. But our main mission is tied around bringing people together around the field, uh, promoting the field as well, and also uh, providing the necessary education for someone from a complete beginner be able to catch up to those that are a little bit more advanced and so when i say uh, neurotechnology i mean one or two things or it could be both depending on what you're interested in doing um, it can be more from the neuroimaging side so being able to read brain activity and then trying to get some form of insight from it or it could be more from the what i like to say the neuromodulation side so it could be doing things like influencing brain activity and uh, the most common method of doing that is through uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS. TDCS is just essentially strapping an eyeball battery to your brain, and depending on where you place the uh, electrodes and the flow of electricity, it can either inhibit or excite certain areas of the brain, which can then change your behavior. So this is, for me, the, you know, the, the main interest that's really around the field of neurotechnology and everything that kind of is associated with uh, the brain. For my context, you know, the thing that... I guess biohacking means for me is uh, I've always been really interested in the process of human optimization and human improvement as you know, there are many individuals that are out there that will take some form of supplement or they'll take a drug to do some form of cognitive improvement or help to overcome certain illnesses, uh, you know, whether it's ADHD, depression or otherwise, I'm very much in the believer of trying to find methods to 
teach yourself or to kind of just modulate the brain itself so that you can in fact learn how to have a little bit more self-control. Uh, so, you know, learning how to increase your levels of focus, learning how to manage symptoms of depression, you know, learning how to regulate emotions, you know, from fear and otherwise, uh, I believe, and just from my background and from my experience, that it is in fact possible to do this with technology. And so this is what I really get excited about in terms of the field of biotechnology and uh, of what's the, the future and how we can in fact, you know, how each person can essentially become the optimal person that they, I believe that they were born to be. So you talked there about lots of different things, and I'm sure we'll dive into each one in a bit more detail. Um, I just wanted to hit directly and sort of go straight into Neurotech X. Um, yeah. You mentioned there it's almost like a learning platform. Do you think that this fills a void that's maybe given there by, you know, a lack of the educational system, or do you think it's just a case of people don't have that platform? I would say the information's always been out there. It's been there in one form or another. The thing that I've discovered, so, uh, so Neurotech X is the organization's nonprofit, which is doing all these different types of activities. What I'm currently responsible for right now is building our actual online platform called Neurotech EDU. So um, I can share the link with you afterwards, but this is essentially gonna be the online platform where we're gonna be hosting all of our different content, and this is what our community is leveraging to build their own tutorials. But to go back to your question, it's been a couple different things that I've noticed that going through the process of learning it myself and trying to teach others, there tends to be three or four, I guess, uh, blockers that would actually stop someone from going through the, you know, the necessary amount of time to really get a, a good understanding of the field. Uh, number one, there is this multidisciplinary nature that's associated with neurotechnology. And if I'm just focusing on a one form of neurotechnology, called uh, EEGs or electroencephalography. Um, it's something that is, has a lot of different components that goes into it. So, you know, there is a hardware component, there is a software component, there is a neuroscience component to working with it, there's a machine learning component, there's a signal processing component. And because of this, it could be very difficult to kind of understand the bigger picture of it. So you have all these different things that have to kind of come together so that you can actually use a system and get some insight out of it. Uh, so this multidisciplinary side of it is a bit of an issue for some. Uh, other side of it is that it, there tends to be a lot of academic jargon that's used when you try and find any references around it. So most books or uh, tutorials are created by people that are doing their master's or PhD in the field. And I guess when you stay long enough within an academic institution, you get used to speaking in a particular type of way, you know, whether it's just because it's more efficient to speak and, and more jargon or not that also tends to hold a lot of people back because they just get so overwhelmed with terms that they, you don't actually necessarily need to do to explain it, but people are just so used to using them. That's one issue that you also have to deal with. And then there's the other side of it, which is, you know, there tends to be a lot of different pieces of information, but unfortunately a lot of the times it's not centralized. So, uh, you know, there's been a very popular concept of brain computer interfaces, you know, interfacing some form of system to the brain and then being able to do something with it. So when I talk about neurofeedback, and like doing like training for like ADHD, you know, you'd be using a brain computer interface to say, for example, connect an EEG to your tablet and then kind of tracking your focus levels as you're, you know, you're training yourself. You know, anyways, to go back to what I was saying, the, the major issue is that there's a lot of these different things that you have to understand, but a lot of the times they're not really centralized into a single location. And so what we're really trying to do is just make sure it's all centralized, there's minimal academic jargon, and we can have like a very good holistic approach to teaching it so that you don't get lost in one component or another. Just uh, again, you, you mentioned, you know, having sort of a, a brain interface device. I remember before 
seeing things like, I think it's a motive epoch yeah. uh, and they have an EEG headset, I think as well. Yeah. Um, I think they also give an open source or it's some sort of open source developer package. I was just wondering from your perspective as someone that sort of knows most about this sort of technology, what do you think is still preventing the mass adoption of, of it as an interface device? I mean, I could explain a few of the things that actually would stop someone from learning the process, but to actually even confound it even more, what most people don't tend to realize when it comes to things like EEGs is that it's not a very robust technology. I mean, if you think about it, right, like you're placing a conductive material on your head to read the small microvoltages of electrical activity that are created, and then you have to amplify the signal and do this whole, you know, uh, uh, digital conversion. There's a lot of noise that can interfere in terms of getting proper data. So, you know, the reason why companies like Emotive and Muse, so Muse is the headband that a company uh, interaction creates out of Toronto, you know, the reason why they're really good is because of the fact that they have a, like a rigid form factor. And when I say form factor, it means like the design of the headset is in such a way that you'll have minimal like movement of the electrodes. And actual, when you're doing any form of like neuroscience research, like movement of electrodes is one of those things that can kill off an experiment. So, you know, you may be planning for like months and months to run this experiment, and then all of a sudden your patients are touching the electrodes, and then you lose all your data. So, you know, there is this issue in terms of robustness. So when people want to like wear this thing out in the field, you know, what they don't necessarily thinking about is that, you know, you can't really walk around and try and like get some form of insight. At the same time, it's very, very difficult. Most of the companies that actually design like mobile EEGs, the really good ones tend to be the medical or the research grade. And research grade, unfortunately, is very expensive. So you're talking about something that would cost over $10,000, even more, depending on the amount of electrodes you want to use and the design of it. So it, number one, it's just such an unrobust technology. And to go along with it, the thing that Emotive, unfortunately, has going against it is that uh, because, you know, they are a company that is really trying to maximize a certain amount of profit, at the beginning, you know, it was a little bit more open. But as time has gone on, um, and they had to kind of focus a little bit more into the segments that would actually return money, which is primarily the research segment. They've had to find ways to kind of make themselves profitable. So it's just part of the unfortunate thing when you do have any kind of like funding, you know, you really have to be finding ways to make recurring revenue. And because of this, they've actually started to implement a subscription fee into their data, meaning that you have to pay like, I think like $60 for like 30 sessions. And you can, there's ways of getting around it if you if you know how to kind of take apart the hardware, but you know that's that's always going to be one of those things that will hold it back from being able to have a little bit more mass adoption, uh, which is unfortunate because you know there's a lot of great things that goes into that headset, and if I compare it to another one which is a lot more open, the Open BCI, that, which is a great tool because it's it's open and it's available and you can do whatever you want with it, but unfortunately it's not as consumer friendly. And so this actually has a little bit more of a learning curve associated with it. And unfortunately, I think that the return is not there just yet. There'd have to be such a strong market that's being developed using this stuff that, you know, it becomes a little bit more profitable. And, and I believe eventually it will. But, you know, there's going to be a few things that maybe will stop it. But, you know, there has to be a certain return on investment that people are going to be looking for, for it to be worthwhile. So unless you're someone who's maybe, you know, quadriplegic or paraplegic, or you have limited mobility and you want to use your brain as interface, there's no real motivation. So going along uh, further with your project, so are any of them that you're working on incorporating any of the implants that you have or possibly implants that you might be planning on getting or designing for the future? Before answering the question, I'll explain which implants I do have. So I have two uh, NFC implants. 
one RFID implant, uh, all of them which I had done at the Body Hacking Con in uh, Austin, Texas, so where I got to meet uh, Actually, Cooper, did I meet you in Austin, or was it at DEF CON? Uh, I think it was both. Okay, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I met you on uh, um, Body Hacks back when I got implanted, and when I met Nina, and then I met you at DEF CON. Right, right, right. Okay. So, yeah, so I have uh, two NFC implants, one RFID. The two NFC implants right now. So the thing with me, I, I mean, I'm kind of interested as to, you know, how we can do technology and body integration or technology and integration into the body and I honestly when I actually got them at the beginning I had zero expectations as to what I wanted to do with it I just thought it was really cool that I can inject this thing into my body and without even really thinking about the consequences of it which I guess was cool but stupid at the same time you know I just went with it and so what I've been doing with my NFC ones essentially it's just become my party tricks so uh, I would go to parties I have my Android phone with my NFC on it and then I would just go, you know, send people to, to different links. I've become a little bit more optimized with it, and one of them has my contact info on it. But unfortunately, um, I think I actually gained the necessary like, acquisition of the NFC with the phone, and the, the time it takes to actually get it done, it's probably just much easier just to sell, tell someone to look you up on LinkedIn or to give them a card. So it's not the most efficient process, but uh, it's fun anyways. For the RFID one, I'm using it actually as a badge for work. So I've cloned my uh, work badge onto the RFID. And uh, once again, it was, I mean, I don't need to do it, which is, you know, the, the unfortunate thing with a lot of the, the technology. But I just thought it was really funny to just kind of walk around and just put my hand against the RFID reader and, uh, and just get a reaction out of it. So maybe I was looking for attention. I don't know. That was what I was aiming for. But what I really am interested in, because I'm really interested in like biosignal acquisition, whether it's EEG, EMG, GSR, uh, or otherwise, I'm really kind of looking forward to the day where it's a little bit more easier to do either like like more tattoo or even more things that are transdermal or, or implanted that are more like biosignal acquisition. So being able to capture heart rate, always being able or capturing you know, heat or so on and so forth, just because of the fact that I'm really interested in trying to acquire as much data from my body as possible. So I've already done my, my genomics tests and, and everything like that. And uh, I just want to continue that process to, to understand myself a little bit more. And uh, so that's really where I see it going down the line. There are some implants that I'd like to see from the neurotech side or the brain side. But unfortunately, when you're doing any form of implants to the brain, there's a lot of risks that's associated with it. So there's some kind of like more like transdermal electrodes they're like kind of like these pins and they can actually make better contact with your skull, but they're, it's not the best option, but so I'm, I'm still looking around. So one of the things that we talk about um, a lot on the podcast, it's probably great to get your idea as well, because as you say, you've got the implants and you've mentioned the sort of union of technology and biology. So we, we always sort of debate the definition of biohacking and grinding and almost when a piece of technology becomes a wearable. I was just trying to get your idea on, on how you consider your implants versus all the rest of the mm. hardware that you use on a day-to-day basis, whether you consider them different in nature. And as you say, when you go past that step uh, and you've overcome the boundaries you just talked about in terms of you know, the, the actual union of the biology with, with what you have now, whether you then again consider it different. I would say that, you know, to me, they're almost the same thing. What, what really separates, you know, an implant from, from a wearable I guess just because of the fact, the thing that I'm interested in is from the, the biosignal acquisition and not really about, you know, like turning into like a cyborg, like the concept of, you know, becoming a cyborg or anything like that is, it's cool, but it's not really a, 
a, an exciting thing for me. It's just more, I think that there's this great opportunity for each person to become their own, you know, doctor or, or informed biological organism and just kind of understanding how it all kind of comes together. So for me, you know, I, I don't really separate the two that much. For me, I like the idea of catalyzing individuals around, you know, what you can do. So even if I don't necessarily have the answer, I think just even going around showing this actually kind of excites people as to what they can potentially do with it. So even when I just go around and talk about neurotechnology and say, you know, this is the stuff that you can do and blah, blah, blah. I like to see what kind of like ideas come out of that process and what they're actually thinking about using it with the, uh, within them as well. So I think that, yeah, I, I, I guess my answer is that it doesn't really matter that much for me, whether it's a wearable, whether it's an implant. I think an implant just provides an additional value where you don't have to think about recharging it all the time or, uh, you know, really worrying about the device in a, an open environment and losing it and so on and so forth. So it has certain advantages. And so if there were biosignals that were implantable that I could just keep on me for a long period of time, you know, that would save, probably save me a lot more money uh, on the long run instead of having to buy like 15 wearables. But yeah, I, I guess that's where I, hopefully I love things to go is into that implant realm so that, you know, I don't have to think about just get the injection and then you, then you walk away and then you just check your data as you need to. So if you don't mind, I want to jump back to the pins in the skull. How exactly does that work? Is it something like a microdermin piercing with the anchor? Or is it a small needle that just lays under the skin as if it was in cloth? There's a few ones that I had found. And unfortunately, I, I lost one of the links. And it was actually a really, really good one. So I, I have to find out where to find it again. But uh, essentially, yeah, it tends to just be a long needle that can just get under the skin. And because uh, the skin itself tends to be the largest creator of noise or artifacts uh, with the signal quality. So if you can actually get under that, your signal quality, I think, like jumps up by a factor of like, you know, 10 or like five or something like that. It's something crazy. So, you know, if you just consider the fact of how hard it is to actually get a good quality signal from EEGs, you know, if you can get like a five or 10 times improvement, then you, you, you just get so much better data. Like there was that one person who actually went through the process of gaining a uh, uh, you know, an actual implant on the top of his of his brain. So he actually went and got surgery done in South America. Um, and all he was actually interested in doing is actually just gain a lot of data. So he did this for non-medical reasons. Uh, he went and got the surgery and he just acquired as much data from his head as he could. And the beauty of it, it was that it was really, really good data because it was direct from the source. You know, you didn't have the skull you have to worry about. You didn't have hair to worry about. You didn't have skin to worry about. So... Uh, it was really, really good. Unfortunately, you had to get it removed because it was causing complications. But that just shows you that, you know, if you really want good data, you have to go a little bit more invasively. It's uh, interesting speaking to you because I think in this community and especially in this podcast, we always focus on almost adding a new sense and not much in mm. like enhancing the senses and the innate characteristics of like human biology. Yeah. This is kind of what you're doing. So it's, it's almost like a new way of us looking at something and from like a reverse perspective. From that opposite perspective, what, what kind of thing would you would you say to someone that's looking at getting started in the biohacking, you know, mega sphere that it's become? Um, I mean, honestly, I think that there's many different ways that you can go about. It, but that's what I really like about the Granger community is that they are, you know, they're not inclusive in who they are, and they'll work with pretty much anyone as long as you just have an open mind. I really focus on community building as, you know, it's one of the big things that I've had to do as part of Neurotech X is really just kind of going through this process of, of bringing more people into the community and just making them feel excited about the process of working in the field. And so I think that, 
you know, there's a lot of different ways you can get involved, whether it's actually you want to go down the, the academic route and, you know, join labs or maybe doing some of this stuff and start that way. You know, that's a little bit more of a, of a different way of approaching it, a little bit more academic in nature. It's not really, it doesn't have the same feel as like a community where, you know, it's maybe a little bit more humanistic, a little bit more fun because of the fact that you can actually just enjoy the process instead of having to worry about grades or getting a good uh, thesis written. You know, I, I, I really just believe in the value of just getting connected with others. And what the really important thing is just making sure to find the right types of people, right? There's going to be toxic communities no matter where you go and no matter what field you go into. And you just want to make sure that you talk with individuals that just have an open mind, you know, are going to be able to be very patient in answering your questions. I guess essentially people that are like, you know, comfortable in like parent roles and, you know, where you have to like deal with people that are like not childish, but like, you know, curious as children tend to be, and they're just going to ask a million questions and you, it can be very tiring answering questions all the time. If you know, you're getting bombarded all the time with, with, you know, why do you do this and blah, 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 blah. But you know, so you have to have a little bit of stamina. The people have to have a little bit of stamina, but they just have to be good people. And I think if you just don't find good people that are just open-minded, I, I think you're on the right path. And then with them, I think it's really important to push and try and get involved as much as possible. And so you have to, you know, try and be an, as active in the process, even if they may not necessarily want to. Maybe, you know, they, they are so kind of comfortable in like their own little role and the, the way that they do things. Trying to be proactive, I think, is an important thing. Not proactive to the point of alienating, but, you know, try to, like, really get yourself involved as possible if you really want to do it. The thing is, is that with most of this stuff, it may be seem very, very interesting at the beginning, but as time goes on, as you explore it, it may, you may realize it's not something you want to do at all. At least with the community, you can try it out, get a feel for it, and if anything, you just walk away with a, an interesting story. If someone came over to you and said they're thinking of getting an implant, um, being their first one, new to the field, they're not too kind of confident. What would you tell them? What would you relay from your experience? And then hmm. what would you suggest to them to get? Honestly, uh, so the people I've been asking this in Montreal, so in Montreal, we don't really have a strong uh, grinder community. There's like maybe four or five people that I know here in Montreal that have done it. Or maybe there, there exists more, I just don't know them. But I mean, I know a lot of the hackerspaces and, and of the hackerspaces that I, that I know in Montreal, there's like three people or so. I think the standard implant to get is just the NFC, just like in the kind of like the thumb or whatever this finger is called. Uh, what's the finger to the right of the thumb index? Or uh, index? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, just the index like yeah. thumb kind of like area, this in between where the, the V shape is. Uh, I honestly, I think that's uh, the one that I, I've, I haven't really had any side effects with it or anything. I haven't had any effects with any of them, uh, fortunately. Uh, but I think it's just the safest to do. And, and I think it's the one that, uh, Amal does that the most frequent, uh, or is the most frequent one that he, he does as well. And it's, it's the easiest one to work with. And, and when I, people talk to me and ask me about like the side effects of it, then like, you know, what to expect. I just, I say like, listen, it's, it's in a place that's pretty easy to remove if you really want to remove it. It's designed to last, you know, 30 years. It's something that's been used in animals for a very, very long time. It's, it's not something you should be really concerned about. It, it's, it's so minute in terms of risk. You know, you could be doing probably like bungee jumping and have a much bigger risk of dying from that than you'll ever wear from having an implant over there. You mentioned not knowing too many grinders. So what you can say to people if they're thinking of doing this is yeah. there is a group on Facebook um, called RFID Implantees. It's got almost 2,000 members and everyone there just kind of tries to help each other through 
questions and building this up, whether it's something that you've never touched the technology before and would kind of be an entry question all the way up to something of programming, which Cursor would be doing. So everyone there is welcome with any type of question. In your own experience, what does it take to get started in biohacking like uh, in a wet lab, performing citizen science, uh, possibly even working in a local biohacking space? Well, I guess I'll use the example of neurotech. Uh, I, I mean, in our case, honestly, it's it's really just get connected with people and just get, you know, start the process of hanging around with them and just starting to understand what they're doing. I think the other important thing is just making sure that you have good uh, online resources that you can go to so that you can actually learn about it, you know, try it on your own. I would say like going to a makerspace or a hackerspace would be a good place to start just because of the fact that you're going to get a lot more information a lot quicker and they're going to be able to kind of point you in the right directions as to where you need to find the necessary information. Talking with them will make sure that you can get good supplied parts um, that are relatively cheap and since most hackerspaces or makerspaces are always trying to make it as cheap as possible because they don't have a lot of money, they'll be able to help you go through the whole uh, ordeal of really getting started. And, uh, and it's also, I think, that's also a good way to really know if you really want to do this as well because, you know, as they're explaining everything you need to do, you'll start to realize, okay, maybe this is for me or it's not for me. Could you tell us sort of uh, any juicy things about the projects you're working on in X <laughs> or indeed outside like in local hacker spaces um, and so sort of what, what have you got to look forward to from you most of my main project that i'm working on right now is uh, is a biometric device for eegs uh, so being able to use uh your brain activity to essentially quote unquote fingerprint you so as you can use a fingerprint or your the blood vessels in your hand or you know your gait so the way that you walk or your your irises or whatever you know, there's a bunch of different forms of biometrics that you can use to do authentication. Uh, you can hypothetically do the same thing with the brain activity. And so because of this, he is able, to, uh, you're able to essentially do this form of authentication. And I think it's just kind of a really cool way of going about it. And there's certain advantages that go along with it as well. Uh, aside from that, I've uh, also been working on another thing, more from a, a benchmarking perspective. So within the realm of uh, brain computer interfaces, uh, there is this whole idea of being able to build like algorithms that can reach a certain benchmark when it comes to, for example, classifying motor imagery uh, tasks. So a motor imagery task is when you're, in fact, imagining yourself, for example, closing your left hand or, in fact, imagining yourself closing your right hand. Um, it will create a specific type of response in the brain that's measurable by an EEG. And so usually when you're trying to build this classifier that will take the data from the EEG and determine if you are thinking about your left hand or your right hand, there might be a certain level of accuracy that you can get with a particular algorithm. And so my interest is trying to find ways to centralize all the different algorithms that exist around this so that we can have good benchmarks that people can achieve around things like measuring if you're in a focused state or in a calm state. And, uh, and so you're not always kind of like searching for the answer as to how do I build an algorithm to detect if I'm relaxed or not. Uh, so those are the two main that I'm interested in. For more from the the implant side, I, like I said, I'm, I'm really kind of interested in doing something a little bit more implanted around the, uh, the head area. Uh, I think one place that I probably want to start is more with like earring EEGs. So it is hypothetically possible to get some pretty good activity behind the ear uh, for brain activity. And so all you would really need to do is just have something that can be somewhat 
attachable there. And then you can just use like your earlobe as a reference or, or as a, as a ground. And so you can have like even a, a, like a stud that would go into the ear. And this way you can kind of have like a semi permanent EEG implant. And so it kind of like, it's not too invasive, so it won't scare people away, but it's, it's also invasive enough where it still kind of has that grinder feel. That's like way down the line because I have so many other things I got to do. And I hate folk with all the projects. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so recently, um, I went to a conference called UX Sprints in London. Um, yeah. I think they now have a live recording of the show at uxsprints.com. And there they had um, Levy Babbitts, who is from Cyborg Nest, who we've had on before. And the main focus was about creating a new sense or optimizing an existing sense. And it's sort of, it was sort of aimed towards the marketing. So a lot of people that were the speaking at the conference were from you know different major industries to do with sales or marketing. Um, so we actually brought up a question of ethics and I think this is a good time to ask you the same question, especially because you're, you're working with maybe part of the body that's considered the most precious part and maybe even one of the most private parts. Like you're, you're going to have a lot of issues in terms of ethics or boundaries that you need to consider when working with, with this sort of technology. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you could sort of outline what they are and, and how, how you overcome them. I, I guess I do have my own beliefs in the whole thing. They're not very strong, but, um, uh, uh, from an ethics perspective, I guess, you know, there's a lot of different concerns that come up when it comes to, you know, either consumer or accessible EEG devices or, you know, I guess things more within the realm of like implants or, yeah, I guess it would just really kind of come to like, where's this data going? Who's using this data? And can it in fact be something which can be used against you? Because of the fact that I, I try to have a very transparent way of viewing the world and kind of presenting myself. I, I don't really necessarily care if someone has my data. And so some of the concerns that I, I've, I've been identified as to someone having their data is that, for example, if you have a pre-existing condition to something, you know, like Alzheimer's or, or otherwise that could be actually picked up by like brain activity, this maybe will be hypothetically gets used against you, you know, from insurance providers. So, you know, so how some people are afraid of giving away their, their genotypes to, to or making them publicly available because, you know, maybe insurance won't cover them under certain conditions. In Canada, I don't really have to care about that as much because of the fact that insurance is uh, pretty much provided by the government. So uh, I don't have that same concern. But I, I would say, yeah, so I guess from that perspective, you know, if you have insurance providers that have a lot of power in the country, you know, you may not be as comfortable sharing that information. From it being used to manipulate you, it's a very tricky thing to say that it will be an issue. I think but for now, it's not something anyone really should be concerned about because even if they were to get your, your physiological response to particular things, it's no different from what's already being done out in the public light right now, right? So if you're talking about like how to respond to a particular, you know, ad in the public, you're not like, you could just look at my, the way I look at the ad from cameras that already there and kind of get a response from that, or you can get like my, my gender, you can get everything else. So I think there's so many more invasive things that are out there in the public right now that, you know, will be able to steal your identity than you'll ever do with brain activity. Maybe where it will become an issue is if you then start to get the integration of EEG and TBCS into single systems that are then mass produced and that anyone can get their hands on. So if you have a device that can essentially influence brain activity, and you have an idea of maybe what, how they respond to particular things. Maybe, yes, yeah, so let me say from the neuromodulation perspective, there will be issues. 
uh, just because of the fact that if you do influence an individual to become either more aggressive or less aggressive or more responsive or less responsive, maybe that will eventually become a problem. But once again, you know, if you really want to do that, you know, there's probably drugs that could probably influence you much harder than, you know, ever a TCS ever will, right? There's like that, I forget what the name of the drug is, but there's that one drug in South America that essentially turns you into a, like, pretty much puts you in a slave state where you become very successful. Like, I would be much concerned about that than ever having to worry about the TDCS being able to influence me at that level. So maybe this will be a problem in, like, you know, 30 years or, like, 35 years, but not, not for a, a little while. And also, while you're sort of developing these projects and things, um, just as an example, especially with the RFID implants, you would have definitely have seen all the people that are like, you know, it's the mark of the beast, you know, um, you, can, <laughs> you know, you, you, you do get it. And like, um, oh, you, you can track, you can track you with it. Are you not worried that someone knows where you are all the time? And I guess a lot of that is put down to misinformation or, yeah. or just misunderstanding. Now with something so complex, like the brain, it's not so easy just to say, Oh no, you know, this is not how it works. You know, it's like your card in your wallet and how, how, if I, if I was of, of someone of, of a community where I, where I believed in this sort of thing, um, and I came to you and I said, you know, are you not worried that you're going to do this? Is this a sign of this? How, how do you overcome that where it's not so easy just to say, well, we use RFID every day? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing when it comes to, to neurotechnology because, because of what it represents and how people can actually perceive it. And because of the fact that I focus on community building, you do tend to get a lot of people that, you know, tend to come from very extreme perspectives around what this type of stuff is. And, you know, they assume that, you know, you're reading your brain and, you know, you're learning how I'm thinking and what I'm thinking about in my head. You know, all my private thoughts are essentially now available to the world. And what I just try and do is, you know, I, like, like I said before, you can't mock them. You know, if you ever get any perspective that's kind of very ignorant, you can't mock it because of the fact that, you, you know, there's a lot of different factors that will influence an individual and their knowledge that they'll have around the subject matter. Maybe they just don't give a shit about the stuff, and so they never really took the time to learn about it. Maybe they were given information by their parents or by TV, or maybe they're a little bit, you know, they have more of a, a, a delusional response to things. So they're just very delusional individuals in the first place. So even if it wasn't brain activity, you know, and it was something else like the government watching you, they just believe that it's happening. So even if it, maybe there's a little bit of truth or not in it, that, that's not really what matters. But it's more the point that there's always going to be individuals that are going to have these types of beliefs. What I just try and focus on is just giving the facts as I know it. And I, and I just try and be as transparent as possible around it too. I, I don't try to push a particular agenda because from my experience, when you really start to push, even if they might be compliant on the spot, you know, consciously or cognitively, they're not really agreeing with you. So they might just say, yeah, 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 just to be polite, but they're not actually going to agree with you and go along with it. So what I just try and say is like, listen, from the information that I've gathered, from the science that I know, because, you know, there's a lot of science out there, so you can't really know everything. Uh, what you're trying to say right now is not really a realism. If you actually look into the technology and what it's reading and how people do neuroscience, you know, it's something that is completely different from the way that you actually are perceiving it. And I, I, won't, be as, I won't be as aggressive as I am right now. I'll just be like, no, it's not, you know, it's not really the case. It's, you know, there's a lot of misinterpretations about it, which is not necessarily true. I give the information. I don't know how they were going to respond to it, but... Maybe it's my size because I am I am six foot three and you know over over two forty so it's uh, maybe most people won't bug me but uh, I I tend to not get uh, too many negative responses if I just you know have an open conversation around it. 
in your own grind, what's been your single best moment of achievement? I don't know. I, I think that there's been a lot of achievements. I think that, you know, if I think for my, for a, at least half of my life, I essentially lost it to, to depression. And, you know, so this is part of my motivation as to why I like to deal with this type of stuff. Uh, because for a very long period of time, I was not at all uh, a functional human being. And so, you know, whether it was anxiety or depression, uh, I could not function at a level that I could be productive. And so I think the fact that, you know, if you look at the time where I start to become much more productive and the amount of output that I've been able to do as part of that process, I would say that's probably been my biggest achievement is that I've been able to, you know, use the information I've gained in psychology and neuroscience and, and the tools that I've been working with to kind of like improve myself uh, from a productivity level, from an efficiency level. Like I, I'm really proud with the fact that I've been able to find a system that can make me do a lot of different things. And cause this is for me, what's really important is like, what's the impact you can have in the world. Like I don't give a shit about having children or anything like that. That for me is not the way I really want to have an impact in the world. I'd rather do it through the projects that I have. Uh, I mean, you can do both, but I'd, I'd rather just focus on one. And so for me, you know, I, I, I'm really happy with the work that I've been able to do in a short period of time. And so this is why I also really believe in it as well, right? Like if, if I've been able to go through this process of understanding myself and using these types of tools to make myself as efficient as possible and as effective as possible, it doesn't mean, I think that other people can also learn from that so that you can kind of, you know, once again, get to your true self that you really want to achieve. You, you sort of discussed there about, um, you know, sort of personal things. I, mean, I don't want to be too invasive. Um, yeah. So answer the following question, however you wish to answer it. Um, do you feel that your experiences in your own personal life have aided the discovery or even just the, the motive for, for what you're doing now? And do you, do, how do you think they've, they've helped you sort of drive, especially to do with the brain um, and, and things like that? Like I was saying, um, you know, the, the process of having to overcome depression and, you know, all the side effects that go along with it, I would say it's a double-edged sword, right? Like if you actually look into like the theory of depression, you know, depression is not a bad thing. You know, it becomes only an issue if it becomes prolonged and for a very long period of time, you never really kind of rebound from it. And so unfortunately that's what I had. But what I did learn is that there is a place in life for depression because of the fact that the process of becoming depressed is the process of humbling yourself. And so because of the fact that maybe you, you believe in something so hard and then you keep getting challenged on it, then you keep, well, you, you keep trying something and it goes wrong, it goes wrong, it goes wrong, it goes wrong. Then you'll fall into a funk because, you know, you're not getting anywhere and you just, you kind of, yet you get this helplessness that comes along with it. Where the power of that helplessness is, is that now you really are at a point where you're going to have to try and adapt and try something new to actually get a much better result. So, you know, that process of, of you know, going through that really just made sure that I knew that if I'm, depression is not bad. It's just you have to harness it in the right way. And that kind of built on my mantra of like self-improvement and self-learning and always kind of like checking yourself in a very objective fashion. You know, if you're doing something, you have to be able to objectively quantify, you know, how well you're doing at it. And so that became very, very important for me as part of that process. And that just fed into my interest for biotechnology because, you know, now you had tools that can now quantify a lot of that for you. So, you know, biological data is the most objective form of data that you can get. And so, therefore, uh, that's where I think it's a really powerful tool. For anyone that's sort of going through the same thing, is, is there any sort of words 
that you, that you want to directly say out to there as a, as a platform you know we don't know who listens to this podcast and what we're trying to do is create a platform where people can 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 listen every week to just something random or something that will help them so is there anything that you would like to say to anyone that is currently going through what you've also gone through i mean the first thing is to understand that there is a problem and if you feel like you are kind of depressed all the time or you're feeling anxious all the time it's something that can be very difficult to figure out on your own because it is a physiological response and you know you may not be in the right type of mental state to do it properly so i, I my always my biggest thing first is always you know reach out to people uh, reach out to experts reach out to professionals and even if the person you meet the first time is not the right fit you know there is going to be a person that will be able to help you go through this process and i think it's important to understand that first Eventually, what you do have to then realize is that, you know, you can only rely on other people so much when it comes to managing your emotions and your symptoms. And so eventually, there's going to be a process of learning and self-control that you're going to have to build. You have to just keep a healthy mind towards it. You know, try the process before judging it. But, you know, if you're really at point zero, first thing you got to do is go out and find someone to talk to that knows how to respond to this type of stuff. In your own battle with it, have you used any supplements to try and uh, take the edge off or have you just gone to professionals? Have you used anything like 5-HTP, which is a supplement that can be like a mood stabilizer? No, man. Like when, I, when I was learning how to handle this stuff, this was you know, over uh, it was like close to seven years ago that I finally figured it out, eight years ago. So you know, the concept of, of nootropics and, and mood stabilizers, I mean, it was – you, know, you could go to your doctor and get them, but it wasn't really something that was as accessible as it is right now, or at least maybe it was. It's just that it was not as popular. So uh, I, I didn't have that option. And honestly, I'm, I'm pretty happy that I did it because of the fact that what it really forced me to do is just try and learn it myself and learn how to manage it myself. So uh, this way it became more powerful because then I had to make sure my behavior that I had the proper response to certain circumstances would actually cause depression to you know, flare up quote unquote, so for a lack of better term, you know, kind of, you know, when it comes to depression and kind of like falling back into a funk, you know, there might be certain external triggers that will cause you to do it, to go back into that mental state. And so by going through this process of using standard like approaches that they do in, in psychology to treat depression, it made me develop, I guess, the necessary cognitive tools to be able to handle it and not have to rely too much on a, a supplement. So I think that that is powerful because of the fact that, you know, if you ever fall into another circumstance where you're dealing with a lot of emotions or anxiety or whatever, uh, you now have developed the tool sets internally to know how to handle that. And so you can become a very good emotional regulator as part of the process versus relying on something else to uh, make sure that you can get the same feeling. Because, you know, people ask me all the time, like, how can you stay so calm about shit? Because, like, you know, I'm, I deal with a lot of different personalities in my work, and, and a lot of them can be very type A. They'll, they'll always be triggered in a way of getting aggressive or angry at someone. And as part of the process of learning how to deal with my depression, I learned how to not respond to those particular responses and just kind of, like, cognitively walk myself through the process as to why, you know, someone is acting the, that way towards me. So was it something that I did or is it the way that, you know, something that's associated with it and it's not really my fault? And because I go through this process, I never really put blame on, on anyone. On myself, maybe I'll put blame if I'm at fault. But, you know, I won't put blame on them because it's just the way that they handle the world. And I can't be angry at that because, I mean, it's just inefficient. It's not worth the time. Just leading further on this, uh, I mentioned 5-HTP because I actually know about it 
because I, I actually take it myself. With my current life status, I've had to deal with a lot myself uh, with basically not being able to find a day job. And to help me with it, uh, I've done my own research. Like you said, it forces you to look at it because uh, I'll, you know, I'll put it very bluntly, I'm an asshole and I won't, don't go to other people and share with them my problems. I found 5-HTP actually really levels things out for me to where uh, instead of just being um, the normal uh, off-hinged all the time, it, it just levels you off a lot, takes the edge off. I didn't know if you had tried anything like that or if you uh, went so far as uh, done any kind of stimulation through TDCS uh, to try and help improve mood or in concentration. I myself use that not for mood, but concentration because I'm a stroke survivor. Mm. And, um, uh, that's why I was trying to, at one point, um, we, when we were talking to Melanie before I had asked her more about TDCS and EEG and combining it to try and use the EEG, uh, to be able to get a baseline before and after the stimulation to be able to track it and see if there's any real enhancement. I'll just say I haven't seen anything. It's just been time that has really been the the help with me just being a functional human being. Yeah, I would um, I would say that definitely. You know, stroke in itself is a very different type of beast because you know there's a very there's actual damage. You know, there's dead brain tissue that is being generated as part of that process, and so it's it's really changing a lot of shit up there, and it's very very traumatic in terms of the impact that it will have on your brain. And so, you know, things like TDCS have been used in that context to help people with stroke uh, rehabilitation, a lot of it from a motor cortex perspective, but I'm sure it could be used in other methods. Unfortunately, with TDCS, because of the fact that you can't really control the flow of where the electricity is going to go very well, and because, you know, your brain is so different from one individual to another, there has to be better methods to do neuromodulation for this particular thing. So TMS might be a much better one, but unfortunately TMS is something that is still very expensive and, and not anyone can get their hands on it. So, you know, the goal, I think you have to find other methods to be able to improve that process uh, from a stroke perspective. But I mean, if I just to kind of go back to what you're talking about before in terms of like emotion, you know, you having to deal with your looking for work and being able to like manage that, you know, I think that, you know, I, I've had periods in my life where I was very, very stressed and like I, I had built the tool set to kind of like manage my stuff. But even then, when you're dealing with like a lot of anxiety and other shit, you know, it becomes very, very difficult to like kind of consciously control yourself because especially when you become tired and, and you're not really thinking clearly all the time, it's, uh, it can be very, very difficult to kind of maintain a certain emotional state. And so I think that, you know, there is a place for it. And I think especially in times where it's really, really rough, it might be required just to kind of provide a little bit of balance. I think the tool set that I've worked works in like, you know, 85 or 95% of the times, but you know, there's going to be one or two, 3%, you know, where it's just so much that even for myself, I just have to like take a step back. And, but because of the fact that I went through this process of dealing with depression, I know how to take that step back. I know how to be fair to myself so that I, if the symptoms don't stay bad for a very long period of time. So I'll, I'll feel it, but I can, I can lose that like anxiety a lot quicker than others. One group of, of, or one sector of people that we'd like to get on um, is people that are heavily involved in the sort of nootropics arena of this sphere of you know, biohacking. Um, do you have any, any words of, of wisdom to do with nootropics? Have you ever delved into sort of nootropics? And also, 
Would you, what sort of questions would you ask people from, from someone that's sort of like on a different scale, but adapting the same part of the body kind of thing? What, 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 would, you, what would you ask someone that, that was from the background of neutrophics? You know, it's interesting because I think the reason that like, you know, the, the biosignal stuff was more interesting for me versus going maybe down the route of like neutrophics in terms of like being able to self-improve is because, I mean, for myself, I'm, I'm a little bit against the idea of like pharmaceutical options. I think it's just something that I was raised up with because my family, my mother at least, she never really liked the idea of drugs or like anything that's like pharmaceutical or synthetically created. And so I think that that philosophy stayed with me as well. So I've actually only recently started to explore nootropics a little bit more. And I'm kind of like starting at the baseline. I'm like just doing like L-theamine and like caffeine pills to just kind of have a productivity boost, you know, during the course of the day. I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit more open to this stuff. And I think that, you know, from uh, if I'm asking people in the field of nootropics, you know, I'm wanting to get a little bit more about their perspective. I would just really, I mean, I've met some people that are kind of a little loopy, but like the nootropic stuff. And it just, and they have like very, very like extreme behaviors. And, and I don't know if the two are correlated. I don't, I'm sure there's more to it than that. But, you know, what I always am careful about when it comes to any form of like, you know, pharmaceutical enhancement is like how much is it affecting me and how much is it an actual improvement and how much of it is actually just like the way that I'm getting there is not the right way because of the fact that like I'm also maybe at the same. So <laughs> I have to use an example to explain this better. There was this one dude that uh, I met at Body Hacking Con. He, he was selling nootropics over there and he was a little bit off the wall. Like he's, I think he spoke like 90 words a minute, like no, I think many words a minute is normal, like 3,000 words a minute. And it was just like, it was just extreme, extreme behavior. Like it was like one thought after another, after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. And I think it just came to a certain point where it came off as being more like manic behavior than it was like anything actually productive that was being said. And so this is like, for me, the concern is, you know, you get up to a certain level with nootropics, but you need to go beyond that before you actually lose the game that you're getting, right? Like if your goal is to have like a lot of energy and be productive, but you're becoming manic and you're kind of like alienating people as part of that process, like maybe it's not the most effective method to do whatever it is that you want to do, right? Like even if you can go and call like 300 clients an hour, are you going to get like 300 sales out of that process? Probably not if you're just yelling at them, you're just alienating them. So I think you just have to understand how, how to balance it with – you know, other things. And what I really am interested in is how do people balance the nootropics with, uh, with like just healthy regulatory emotions with it and not go over the edge. How would you see research projects uh, that uh, you do with Neurotech X, Open BCI, other, any other projects you might be involved with, changing possible associations with biohacking, grinding, and institutional biotech and maker spaces in the future? Like, do you partner with actual biospaces or in uh, institutional uh, group uh, with yeah. your own research? Because, like, uh, when we spoke with Melanie, she had very um, separate things going on, like her education and her biohacking, her grinding. So it makes me curious as far as with Neurotech X, Open BCI, are they associated with anything institutional or – they're more like a biohacking uh, open research type of thing. I would say that a lot of my work uh, will probably involve a lot of research groups uh, from the education perspective, at least. So because of the fact that one of my 
my main interest in neurotechnology is educating people around it and kind of showing them what you can do and trying to find ways to present the information as clear as possible with minimal uh, academic jargon. I think that labs, professors, and all of them are going to have a place in ensuring that the information that I am providing is scientifically valid and has been, you know, criticized by people that are knowledgeable in the field. I'm really excited to kind of see that connection. I think that it's not going to be every lab. There's there's going to be labs that are not going to be open to the idea of doing open education, but it's like anything, right? There's a certain percentage that will. There's a certain percentage that won't. And it's just a matter of trying to find the labs that will do it. And I think that the value is so strong that when we can really show the value of what we're creating, then more people will come on board. But, you know, that's something that takes time. And I've found enough people for now that are interested in doing open education. So it's, it's relatively easy. When it comes to more about, like, using more accessible EEG devices versus, you know, paying, like, the $10,000 for, like, a research-grade one, I think there's a lot more researchers as well and labs are open to this idea. So I was actually having a conversation with a professor or a lab in, at the, the university I work at. And they were interested in like knowing about like some of the devices that are out there that they can use to do like mobile EEG. And so they, they, they were applying for a grant for like, you know, 20,000 or 30,000 uh, Canadian. And, you know, they're like, Oh, we're going to get like maybe like a $10,000 EEG or like a $50,000 EEG. And I'm like, why? Like, it, it makes no sense. You want to do this from a, like a, a, an open perspective. You want to make, do this from a, you know, a, a openness to all perspective. You want this to be a product that can be used outside the lab. Like, you should be focusing on first using cheaper hardware and building around that because the challenges of working with cheaper hardware versus like research grade hardware are, are very different. And there's probably a little bit more that goes into working with consumer grade uh, hardware. And so it's better to start off with that, you know, you, if you're going for a $30,000 budget, just buy like, you know, 300 units versus like two and just prototype a lot more and just try and do a lot more with, uh, with the cheaper stuff. Just because I think that a lot of them really want to move outside the lab, but they just don't understand the space. They don't understand the accessible neurotechnology space because they're so used to working in their own world. So I think that I just want to continue to work with them to educate them that what is out there, you know, what is the value, what is the pros and cons of different types of technologies that are available and this make informed decisions so that they can build stuff that anyone can do. And it doesn't have to be something that just stays in the lab. So you mentioned open education. Yeah. Uh, was curious if you had heard anything about Exosphere HQ, which is kind of a open university of sorts, uh, that started in either Chile or Argentina, I don't remember, and then has moved to Brazil. And it'll go for like three months at a time. And I uh, wondered if you'd heard anything about it or possibly might be interested in something or have been involved in a program similar to that in the past, either like biohacking safari or anything like that. No, honestly, I'm, um, I'm really, I'm relatively new in terms of like, exploring the ecosystem. I've been kind of focused on my own little world in that context. I mean, I am working with, uh, there is a Mozilla program that I'm part of right now, which is like an open science initiative. And so they, they actually have projects that are all open source around different concepts. And so I've been working with them as a starting point. But, you know, things like Exosphere and other organizations, I'd have, uh, I have no problem working along with them as well. I would just have to, to understand who they are and and what's just needed for me to, to participate. With all your projects, implants that you've mentioned, what's the biggest impact that you want to make? 
Uh, honestly, I think the thing that I'm, I'm focused on is a one, like the most valuable like indicator of if I'm doing a good job is like how many people can I bring into the field? And so I'm just really focused on trying to make this as accessible as possible so that more individuals can come into it and feel comfortable in doing it. And I think it's a really, really exciting area. And I think that there's a lot of untapped potential that can still be done. And it's just, I think that, you know, more people just need to be aware of it and understand it and kind of realize that it's not as difficult as they think it is. And if I can bring thousands, two thousands, hundred thousand people to come on board and, and get involved in the field, I think that I've done a good job. You talk about um, potential there. What projects have you done or what projects could be done? Sort of like what's the potential that could help the rest of the world or, or different groups of people? Well, I mean, so the way I like to see it is that, you know, there's been neuroscience research that's been done with research grade EEGs for like years now, like 50, 60 years. And there's a lot of different paradigms that have been explored, brain paradigms that have been explored at the same time. So, you know, how you respond, what's your physiological response to certain types of things. And to start, when I say things, I mean like stimuli. So if you're presented like a picture of something, how does your brain respond and blah, 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 blah. So there's been a lot of data that's been collected and research that's been done. There's like, you know, there's neuroscience databases that are just massive and massive, massive, massive. And if you think about all the EEG experiments that are being done in the world, and you can in fact take a lot of these, shrink down the number of electrodes, and then try and reproduce it. You know, you have a lot of different things that could hypothetically be reproduced from like research grade stuff to then anyone can do that. So essentially you can become anyone can become like a citizen neuroscientist and actually start to understand their brain a little bit more in terms of how they respond to particular things. So I think that the real value, it, it's, you know, whether it's seeing how, you know, how you respond to, to acronyms, what's your, for lack of a better one, what's your level of anxiety for like a task that's related to like sharing maybe, Oh, so here's a good one. So maybe if you're thinking about like how to handle elements of like racism, and like how people may respond physiologically to like a threat that's more of like a, a threat because of someone's color or, or gender or nationality or whatever, you know, you now have a device that is like a physiological response. You see how they're physiologically responding to particular things. And then you could go through the process of doing like a neurofeedback to actually make them a little bit more conscious of what they're doing and help to train them a little bit more. So, you know, it can even go to that extent of where you're helping to kind of fight bigotry by like really bringing it to a physiological level and making sure that you could maybe have better methods to train people or create more sensitivity within people. In everything you've done, I imagine there's been some ups and downs and some challenges and hurdles. What would you say is the biggest challenge you've had to overcome or maybe a few along the way? I would say like at the very beginning, it was just, you know, trying to find a, a, a place in the community and, and really starting to feel validated that I should be here. So, you know, for a very long time, there was a, a I felt uh, I had imposter syndrome and, you know, where I felt like, I don't know why I'm here. Like, you know, these people are like so much smarter than I am, so, so much more intelligent. And, you know, I, I feel like a fraud and I like, I don't know if I can contribute or if they even really want me around. And maybe this is something that a lot of people feel when it comes to, to like these types of communities where, you know, there's that, you know, sensation of, 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 you know, where you're faking it and where you really don't feel like you belong because they're just so much more advanced. And so I think overcoming that was a very big one. And at the very beginning, it was a little bit more difficult with me because I felt, 
<laughs> at least that's the way I, I saw it subjectively. Um, but, you know, I felt like they didn't want me to be there and they, and they saw me more as a nuance than, than a, a person that can provide value. And I don't know if it was just like the way I responded or the way I was acting, I don't know. But I really had to push myself to kind of stay in it. And it was a very stressful part and it was a lot of anxiety. And I was, you know, I just wanted to quit and I, and I just kind of like kept pushing because I knew it was something that I really wanted to, to prove to myself that I can do. So eventually, you know, I felt like I was more into the community. I felt like I could connect with people better. And uh, as relationships got better, uh, you know, that eventually went away. But, you know, that was the very first big one. It's just really overcoming that the imposter syndrome and really starting to really get more into the field. What implant do you feel is missing in the world? What would you like to see developed to be implanted? I think I'll bring it to the what I'm, I'm interested in having is more like these like passive biosignal acquisition things. Because I think that if you have really good data that can be built or acquired, sorry, and then you could actually start to automate a lot of different things in your life. So if it's things like, you know, when you should be having a coffee, when you should be sleeping, when you should be blah, 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 you could actually start to so if, if you're, if you really have like an important day the next day and, you know, you want to really make sure that you're really well prepared for it, you know, just making sure that you know how you are physiologically so that you can be in the best state possible. So, you know, whether you're anxious, you know, if you're anxious then you have to find ways to decrease your anxiety and, you know, either it's, you know, going through a process of learning how to meditate or taking a bit of wine and doing a walk. Uh, I think it's just really important that these systems should be there so that people who are maybe not as conscious of their body, they now have something that they can use to help and like understand why they're feeling the way that they are or help to at least track it. With a lot of the challenges that we've seen uh, you know, with biohacking citizen science often being just viewed as a strange subculture of sorts, in your own opinion, what do you think uh, could be done, should be done to try and make it more mainstream? I would say like what I, I, I guess my, my best answer is the one that is the approach that I've been using for neurotechnology, which is just go out there in the public, answer questions in a very open fashion, you know, think of like the best teacher you've ever met, right? And just try to mimic their behavior. And I think it kind of comes to the same standard types of, of ways of doing it. Just be open, be passionate about it, be conscious of the good and the bad of it. Don't try and push too much one agenda. You know, try and give a holistic perspective. The other thing you should always consider is that depending on who you want to talk to, make sure you have the right representative uh, to go and talk with them well, right? Most people of different cultures uh, or of different cliques are going to connect with people that they identify with. And that's just the unfortunate thing about humans. And so, you know, make sure you have the right representative when going to talk to certain types of people because it'll be more difficult for them to accept what you're doing if they can't identify with the individuals. But as long as you keep an open mind, as long as you don't try and fight fire with fire, you just have to create a positive spin. I was watching a YouTube clip about uh, someone who used to be in the Ku Klux Klan. And I know it's a really weird example, but it was like the story of how this guy eventually left the the Klan and why he did. And it was because of an interaction with a, a, a fellow uh, of a colored fellow uh, who was a priest at uh, at a church, and whenever they would go and harass the priest, the priest would never respond with fire. Uh, you know, would never get angry at the individual, or always try and fight back. 
he'd always have a happy face. He'd always be smiling and he'd always show love to the other people in the room. And the reason why I think this is important and it's kind of like, it also ties to this other idea of, so for people that I guess have a dog, you know, in the call or anyone that's listening, you know, if you're ever having a bad day and you go home and all of a sudden you see your Labrador or your dog just wagging his tail and really happy to see you and it makes you, you know, and he jumps on you and he licks your face and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden you start to feel really happy again, right? This is a common psychological thing uh, where, you know, if you're surrounded by people that show a very positive spin on things and just really show affection towards you, especially if you're in a bad state, like they can't fight that, right? You, 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 you kind of just, you buy into it eventually because it feels really nice to have and be surrounded by. So, you know, from that perspective of the priest, you know, he was just showing love and happiness and they couldn't fight that. You can't fight love with, with hate because like you just keep showing love and you can't fight love with love because then it works. So you're getting the response that you want. So it's, it's, as long as you have an open, happy perspective and as long as you're, you're comfortable with different opinions, you know, like just make sure you, you respect people and, and their opinions on things and just show them your perspective. If someone came over to you and asked, say, <coughs> random question and they had fallen into all the common rumours about the implants of being tracked, they're monitoring you and all, all of this, and but they're saying it quite nicely, but they're really impossible to convince. I'm just wondering how you would go about that. I think that's where most people tend to to make a mistake where they feel like they have to convince someone. I think that it's more important to try and find the people that you know you convince, convince them, and then eventually more people will follow along. People are going to have their opinion, and if, they're, if an individual is stubborn and really just believes one thing, you could argue to the end of the world, and nothing's going to change. And it's simply because of the fact, that especially when you're in the middle of an argument, you're so interested in pushing your, your own perspective that you're not going to listen to the other person. It's just the reality of, of the, the situation. It's just the way that we are designed as humans. You know, if you ever have a person who's coming to your door and they're trying to sell you something, you know, you automatically, you know, you, you get into a defensive state. And the moment you're in a defensive state, it means that you stop listening. And if you stop listening, then the argument is over. The conversation's over because of the fact that they're not really, they're not willing to listen to you. And so what I just try and do is I don't want people to be in a defensive state. And it's very obvious that people become defensive. Like they'll, they'll cross their arms like this. You know, they'll kind of like challenge you on things. And what I just try to make sure I do is, you know, if they challenge me, I'm like, I say, I, I see your opinion on things. I understand where you're going with this. I mean, I have a different one. And maybe eventually we'll agree on it. But, you know, for now, I guess we don't. And I don't try to be patronizing. I don't try to be, you know, aggressive. I, I just listen and I say like, yeah, I see where you're coming from. But from my experience, I've seen it otherwise. And, and I, I think it's just unfortunate that we can't come to a conclusion. But, you know, we'll, we'll have to go with it. I can't say that one perspective is better than the other, right? If you're thinking of the history of human beings, you know, there's been people that have always believed, you know, that one way, their way works better than other ways. And it, there's no reason to argue with someone who has such a strong belief. Go and talk to other people that are maybe a little bit more willing to listen and try and convince them. And maybe then the others will eventually catch on because they'll see that there's enough people that are believing it now. And it's not just like, you know, one crazy person telling them to believe one thing. It's like, more people actually believe in this thing. And so therefore, you know, maybe there'll be a little bit more social pressure to actually kind of like listen to what's being said, right? So maybe, you know, if I'm using the salesperson analogy, maybe they won't buy the vacuum that you sell 
try to sell them. But if you then go to the neighbor's house and you sell them the vacuum there, and then the neighbor sees that you, they bought the vacuum, they'd be like, okay, I guess maybe it's a good vacuum. And then they'll go and buy it themselves. So, you know, just make sure you, you understand that you can only get so far with one conversation with one person, you know, give the perspective, just be open about it, but don't spend all your energy on one person. That was an interesting take on that. I didn't expect that for an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Learn something new. As people can see, we've learned quite a bit on this episode. So how are people able to keep up with your work, your projects, uh, maybe even local meetups, uh, like one in London from Neurotech X? Yeah, there is a Neurotech London chapter, and they're pretty active. Uh, so you can always go to meetup and ch- look for Neurotech LDN. So N-E-U-R-O-T-E-C-H-L-D-N. If you're in Montreal, you can join the Neurotech MTL one, Toronto Neurotech TO, Boston Neurotech BOS, Neurotech SF, so on and so forth. So anyways, go to our website at neurotechx.com. You'll see all the list of chapters there. Um, if you want to connect with me, uh, I'm always active on our Slack uh, for Neurotech X. So if you go to the Neurotech X website, you'll find a link for Slack and you can join from there as well. And I should be a little bit more active on Medium. I, I'm just getting used to it now. I'll probably create a little bit more on that. But uh, for now, if you really need to reach me, uh, come, come talk on the Slack. You know, you'll see all the different projects I'm doing there. And you can even port that Slack to IRC like me. <laughs> so uh, any other final comments or questions from everybody? <laughs> it was fun chatting with you all. And uh, thanks for inviting me to, to come and, uh, and talk a little bit about what I'm doing. Thank you very much for your time. Hopefully, I'll, I'll, I'll manage to catch you over in uh, the US. When I, yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to, to DEF CON. <laughs> yeah, that kind of leads me to a final question of, uh, aren't you a, a part of uh, the biohacking uh, village? So I'm, I'm helping as an organizer uh, okay. this year. So I'm working with uh, Janine, who's uh, in the course. So we're working hard to put together something good for you all. Mm-hmm. That's why I was curious. I was wondering if you're on the board or uh, what, what's your part, what's your role is on that? Ringer no, master, will... lion tamer, or just uh, <laughs> dancing monkey? Um, it's a little bit of everything. Uh, before I was looking for speakers, before I was looking for sponsorship, still looking for sponsorship. I had to find them a designer, so I put them in contact with the designer. So I mean, I've been doing event organization for like five years now. And uh, so, you know, there's just standard stuff you have to do. And uh, whatever I can help with, I try and help with. Definitely uh, want to do a special thanks for you, Sydney, today for you know taking the time to talk to us today. If you want to learn more about this journey we take weekly, please check out DangerousMinds.io. All of us want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us uh, as we further explore the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, and implantable technology today. So please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments. Uh, you're welcome to find us on Facebook at you know, facebook.com slash Dangerous Minds Podcast as well. Our homepage, which is dangerousminds.io. And perhaps one day we'll talk to you about the work and our projects you're exploring or developing. But until next week, seek the spark. This is a neural interface. We're going to stick it in your face. Still it in your brain and interlace. There's an arms war on and we're going to win the race. Leave everything in the race. Bring the base. I'm just losing my voice. That's my, my final comment.